Hey, real quick, just wanted to let you know about my brand new book. It's called The Recording Mindset. This book gives you the step-by-step guide for creating pro-quality recordings from your home with ease. And it's going to allow you to know exactly what gear to use, how to position your microphones, and how to get the best sounds for your unique songs. That allows you to confidently create music that competes with your favorite records and do it fast. And so inside of this book, you're going to discover all the techniques and tactics needed to get mix-ready results right at the source. This means you're not going to have to fix it in the mix or spend hours trying to find the perfect settings. And as a result, you'll not only end up with tracks that require little to no post-processing, but it's also going to save you time and allow you to have way more fun throughout the whole process. So if you're interested in learning more about how to create pro recordings from your home studio, grab a copy of the book, visit therecordingmindset.com to get your copy today. Now back to the episode. Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike Indivina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Alex Estrada, and if you're not familiar with Alex, Alex is a musician and producer from the Los Angeles area. He runs a awesome destination studio called The Pale Moon Ranch, and that's where he's worked with artists such as Touche Amore, Joyce Manor, and a whole bunch more. And this is a really fun conversation and a great insight into his process. In this interview, we talk a lot about the concept of feel and how important that is and how you want to make your music stand out from others, even if the genre of music you're working on has kind of a standard sound to it, which let's face it, most modern productions do have a sound that people kind of expect. But Alex's approach to that is kind of how do you work within that framework, but still make it sound different and make it stand out? Because if everyone's music sounds the same, well, then nobody stands out. So when you embrace little technical imperfections and stuff like that, you can create uniqueness in your recordings. And in this interview, Alex talks about a whole bunch of different ways that he does that. And I think it's just a really refreshing approach to take and a cool way to kind of get the best of both worlds, right? So I think you're going to really enjoy this episode and learning a lot more about his process and why he does things the way he does. And I think it's just really refreshing. So with that said, let's just jump right into the episode. Alex Estrada, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How's it going, man? It's going good. How are you? Great. For people who might not be familiar with you or your work, can you give us a little bit of that background on who you are, what you do, and ultimately how you got into all the production stuff you're working on these days? Yeah, it's um, it's been a long journey. I would say I, I grew up in a musical family, so music was, was sort of a given at, at that point. I knew from a very young age it's what I was going to do. Um, uh, the usual story of getting a four track recorder when I was young, starting bands in high school, having dudes come over, record in my closet. And then, you know, even earlier than that, when I was about 10, 11 years old, I, I figured out how to multi-track record on a karaoke machine using Amazing. like swapping the cassettes and the cassette decks. So I would sit there, you know, as soon as I learned guitar, you, you know, I'm like a huge Smashing Pumpkins fan. So that was like the first band I really got attached to. So I had like the Siamese Dream tab book. And learn the intro to mayonnaise and would just stack multi-track record that on a karaoke machine, play it back and be like, 
this, you know, the world needs to know that I just invented this, which is, which is hilarious. Cause I, you know, I just heard your interview you did with Joe Reinhardt and he talks about the, feeling the same way when he was multi-tracking with a, a talk boy and like yeah. a boombox or something. So I heard that and I'm like, oh my God, same journey, right? I'm sure so many of us that started at a young age had that same experience. Totally. Um, so graduated from a karaoke machine to a four track. And all the while my, um, my dad is a musician. He's produced a lot of huge records for uh, a lot of Spanish language artists and He's had a hand in some very, very iconic albums that really shaped my upbringing. You know, he he did stuff with Linda Ronstadt. He worked with Green Day when I was a kid. Oh, wow. Um, he did stuff with The Offspring. Uh, yeah, so he did a lot of cool stuff. So That's he quite, really fostered. quite an eclectic mix there. It's very, it's basically when like a mainstream artist is like, hey, we need kind of like a Latin feel to this arrangement. The producer would, you know, they call my dad because he has a, a background in arranging, but he also has a very well-known, established background in the traditional Mexican music. So he, you know, he could back it up with being able to arrange that, whether it's for a symphony orchestra or for a rock band or a three-piece, you know, a trio of violins for a Green Day song or, you know what I mean? Yeah. So you, you could go back and hear it. There's a there's a Green Day song called Misery where he did all the arrangements on that for like brass and strings. I love that song. He did like... I think he did something for like they did like a pretty fly for a white guy remix where it has like this Latin <laughs> feel to it that he did. Um, he did a Rob Zombie song. I don't remember which one, but yeah, just st- I grew up being in those studios, whether it was A&M, Sunset Sound, whatever. And um, I didn't live with my dad. I've, I've always I've grown up in my mom's household. So she was the one that fostered it at home, took me to trumpet lessons, you know, made sure I had all the cool tab books I wanted and always bought me whatever CD or cassettes I wanted. And um, yeah, just having that back and forth between the two of them being so supportive of that journey, just it ended up with me, you know, doing the whole thing where I joined rock bands in high school and then it just kind of never stopped. And, you know, I, I opened a studio, my old studio, I opened right out of high school. So I was 19 when I opened my first studio. Um and it's the only job I've ever had ever since. So it went from me recording just local bands when in 2004, 2005, um, all the way to now, which, you know, I just moved from a, the shoebox I was in for 17 years, a tiny little studio in downtown L.A. Yeah. Um, I just I just moved to this new studio up in the mountains just outside L.A. last yeah. year. And it's a very, very different, but it's cool to allow the workflow to change a little bit. And, yeah. you know. That's awesome, man. Like it's it's great that you had that um you had that family background because it definitely, you know, sounds like you grew up in an encouraging environment where people, you know, you, they, they were supportive of you, right? Whereas I feel like a lot of the guests I've had on here, it's like you get the parents that are just like, oh, don't get into music. It's a bad idea, you know. So <laughs> Yeah. It's you know what? It's I definitely didn't follow the exact path that they thought I would. So on my dad's side, I come from seven generations of mariachi musicians. Yep. Um, and that's like the family business and they're very successful. You know, they they just put my dad in like the mariachi hall of fame in Mexico. And, you know, they're, they're, he, he teaches and does workshops and, you know, he produces younger groups and all that. And my mom was a, a dancer. She's a flocotico, a Mexican flocotico dancer who toured with Linda Ronstadt oh, as wow. part of her dance company when she did her Spanish language albums. Um, so having both sides of it, like they both know that you can make a living off of things in the music industry. My mom was a bit more into the whole safety net idea of whatever it is, have something to fall back on just because she thought I was just going to be a musician, you know what I mean? Which is fair. It's a fair assessment. Um, But it kind of worked the other way. You know, I I always took the studio thing as a job and I used the band thing kind of just to foster the, the job, the recording job. 
And for a long time, I didn't even realize, again, since this might say, I don't want, I don't know if this sounds like spoiled or as if I took it for granted because I, I came up in it, but I didn't even realize it was my quote unquote, you know, career up until I want to say like six or seven years ago, even though I'd already been doing it for 10 to 12 years yeah. because it was just, you know, that's what our family does. We do music. So I record bands to pay my bills all the while. I'm like, cool. So what am I going to, you know, I'm like 28 years old and I'm like, so what am I going to be when I grow up? You know? And eventually I just had this moment where I'm like, Oh, I'm doing, this is what I do. I record bands because <laughs> in my head, I'm like, cool. I'm going to be like a forest ranger, Indiana Jones type archeologist who explores the old West and writes books on gold mining. Cause I have like such crazy weird interests. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I figured that would be my thing, but lo and behold, it, it ended up being recording. So I've had these different phases where I just, I, I get comfortable and then I fall in love with it all over again. And, and luckily, luckily for me and for, the artist that I'm, I'm uh, lucky enough to work with is I've been on, I've been on a kick for the last, you know, like I said, seven or eight years where I'm just like so passionate about what I'm doing right now. And um, it's cool. It, it, it feels like starting all over again. Cause I'm super hungry to learn new things. Like I, I think I told you before, like I've actually listened to your podcast a lot. I listen to a lot of audio podcasts and that, that all happened when I started like diving back into that journey and kind of, you know, I, I didn't go to a recording school or anything. Mm -hmm. So it was more so let's see where I could find information. Let's, yeah. let's learn how my peers are doing it. Let's, you know, cause that's just how else are you going to learn things these days? Especially when you're, you know, I'm in my late thirties at this point and there's so much information out there and the, the younger generation is killing it. They're, they're doing killer records and some of some old heads like me are probably doing things in a bit of an archaic way at this point, but I think we all have stuff to learn from each other. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, it sounds like you you didn't need to go to the audio college because you had that family that was already immersed in that environment. So I'm sure just by like being in, you know, I don't know if you were going to the studio with them and, and shadowing what they were doing, but like, I'm sure you were, you were at least privy to what was going on and, you know, learning a lot from that. I was a bit a more what I learned and what I feel has been the most uh, important part of of my process and through the years and, and with bands that have come back to me is I learned a lot from watching my dad's process in how to work with vocalists, because mm -hmm. that's, you know, that's the type of music he was doing very, you know, pop oriented or rustic. Like I said, what he's doing, a lot of Latin music. Um, it's all vocal forward. You know, my dad by no means was in there miking up a slam and drum kit. You know, he was just producing. Yeah. Um, so watching, he has crazy pitch too. So he has perfect pitch watching that when you're like eight years old and him, you know, <laughs> seeing someone sing on the other side of the glass at whatever studio he's at. And he's like, no, like that's a sharp, but you're, you're about 10 cents flat or oh, wow. you're going from a sharp and you're sliding into this, but you're overshooting it. Like that's something that I didn't realize would just be ingrained in me from such a young age that that's, I, I feel so lucky to have that as part of my skill set, I feel like that's my strong suit is just working with singers, melodic vocals. And, you know, even with melodic instruments, whether it's guitar or bass, my ears are so sensitive to pitch that uh, I'm never one to be like, I'm, I, I don't <laughs> stare at the tuner all day, put it that way. Yeah. It's just like, that's a little sharp, bring it down. Tuner says it's perfect. Mm, it's off. Fret it. Yeah. Put, put your hand <laughs> position the way it is when you're doing that chord, check the tuner again. I know it's sharp, whether it's, you know, just two little dots above the green, I know it's sharp and it's going to, cause a problem. Yeah. Um, so I feel like that's what I pulled the most from. Cause he was, my dad was a producer. He wasn't an engineer. Yeah. Um, so as far as engineering chops, that's something I had to really figure out on my own. And <laughs> um, 
I did go to, I did one workshop around 2009 uh, out in Lawrence, Kansas at a studio called the Black Lodge, which is owned by the Get Up Kids yep. and a producer named Ed Rose, who was like my be all end all producer at a young age because his work with uh, the Casket Lottery and Coalesce, a lot of cool heavy bands um, out of the Midwest. So I got to be out in Kansas for a few weeks. And that's the first time I, I ever got to sit in on our, the process of a rock band being recorded. And I had already been doing it for a few years, but seeing it done, you know, quote unquote, the right way by someone who, whose records are, they're masterpieces, you know, in my, in my music collection. So that had a huge effect on me. As soon as I got home from that, you know, I did stuff like Touche Amore, Joyce Manor right after that. And then they went and recorded with him. And, um, you know, that was really cool. Having those mentors was very important. And even to this day, you know, I have so many friends that I'm constantly texting friends in the recording industry and asking, Hey, how would you do this? Or, you know, I, I, I listen to my, I celebrate my friends work, you know, I listen to their records regularly and it's cool to be able to detach myself from the friendship while I'm listening to it and just focus on the music. And then, man, I wonder how the producer got this sound. Oh, let me ask him. You know what I mean? That's, that's, that's really cool. It, it's kind of funny too. Like, I think that the, um, one thing I've learned from doing this podcast is just how accessible people actually are, you know, like a lot of people, if you just email a question, people get back to you. It's like, but so many people are just like, there's no way this person's ever going to, you know, give me the light of day. And it's like, just try You know, You'd be surprised how far you can get sometimes. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's awesome, man. And, and, and if you don't get direct answers from them, chances are they've given answers to their former interns who've given answers to staff engineers at other studios. So, yeah, you know, that, that's been a really cool guiding light. Um, one of my best friends in the in the recording world, uh, his name's Sonny DePerry, uh, he's done some of my favorite records and he so happened to work under Flood and Alan Mulder for a while. So awesome. I take everything he says as if it's you know, coming from experiences working under these gods that are on my Mount Rushmore of recording. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, you know, we just worked on something together a few months ago and just watching his process. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't really bug him about it. Like, is that something Flood would do? Is that something Alan would do? But it's just like, this is a guy who's had experiences with these, you know, God tier audio engineers that I've looked up to since I was, since I saw both of their names in the Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness cassette tape credits, Yeah, you know, when I was like 11 years old and I'm like, wow, I have a window and I could ask this dude how, you know, how would he record this vocal? How would he record a drum kit? And it's cool. And I, I, I think the young, younger generation should be open to that and they should know that you can reach out to whoever. I love when, when engineers message me on Instagram or whatever and be like, Hey, what's your go-to snare mic or how do you, hey, I'm dealing with this kind of singer. What would you do? Just, it, it's fun because it causes you to rethink your own process. And who knows? I might adjust something after I hear myself explain explain out loud to someone else, you know? Of course. Um, and anything that stirs the pot in our creative process is good. You know, there's no wrong answer. There's no wrong way to do any of this. Yeah, of course. That's amazing. And yeah, I mean, you know, if you're watching someone who has had that experience past, like it has that experience of working with other big, big name engineers, and of course they're going to pick up things. And, you know, the things that are worth knowing are probably the things that they're now implementing into their own process. Right. So, exactly. you know, it, uh, it kind of all just, there's this big trickle down effect kind of, you know, um, that's awesome. You had mentioned uh, how with your dad, you know, he had this like perfect pitch and that kind of passed on to you. And you talked about 
guitar tuning. Um, when it comes to guitars, are you have you have you have you just moved on to like Evertunes at this point now, just so you never have to worry about the tuning, or or do you still you know stick to the standard just with a really well maintained guitar? I have one Evertune guitar in the studio that gets a lot of use. It's the greatest, you know, that's the greatest invention in string instruments um i'm dying to get the bass because i know they just came out with a bass yeah um but yeah i love the evertune and it solves a lot of problems in in the studio when you know if i'm dealing with a band that only has four or five days to track a lot of songs and on day one i realize they have like a ham-fisted guitarist who you know can't do a bar chord without bending their middle finger on the g string then it's like oh cool check out this telecaster right here it's <laughs> going to solve all those problems and you know we won't need to spend all day compensating tuning wise um that being said when it comes to guitars the most important thing to me on the planet with guitar playing is feel and feel doesn't necessarily apply to a lot of you know power chords and a lot of chugging rhythms and stuff like that. But when you get into very percussive rhythmic elements or leads, by all means, leads are, that's my, that's my, my bread and butter right there. When it comes to guitar leads, it's Mm going to be what has the right feel. And I'm very particular. Whereas someone would be like, Oh, you know, like maybe try it on this string instead, or let's try a different effect. I'm very much in the wheelhouse of, uh, you're playing, you know, you're doing the 12th fret on this string. Why don't you try it on the seventh fret of this string instead? Cause tuning is going to be more stable. And since the gauge is different, it's going to have a different feel to it. It's going to have a warmer tone. Um, you know, the way you're holding your pick, the, which part of your finger of the tip of your fingers touching the string, how gentle you are with that, the gentle dynamic, like inflections of the push and pull, the hammer ons, the slides, all that stuff. That's everything that, that stuff I picked up from, you know, Billy Corgan 101 guitar playing, watching him as a kid, everything was feel. Watching that dude play like Soma or those old Siamese dream songs. And I would just watch those videos just every single day as a kid. And I noticed like this guy isn't, I mean, he could shred, but it wasn't, you know, what we know in the early nineties, like this isn't Van Halen playing eruption. This isn't Jimmy Page (laughs) shredding stairway to heaven. This is a guy playing five notes and he's singing with those notes. Or, you know, I grew up on Carlos Santana, Carlos Santana could play five notes and it sounds like a beautiful singer. It's, it's presented almost like a, like a woodwind instrument. That's the same way my dad plays the trumpet. That's his main instrument. Um, They have this really melodic, almost jazzy background to their playing him and my uncles. And it could be very simple, but it could also make you cry because there's so much feel in the the limited amount of notes they're doing. So that's something I try to pull out of guitarists as much as I can. Um, Mm -hmm. When I am lucky enough to get to play guitar on some records, sometimes I'll get to play leads on records. I have so much fun just, you know, coming up with cool sounds and then just letting letting the fingertips do all the work. Uh, my right hand is, you know, useless. I don't have that Hetfield shredding <laughs> right hand. Um, and I don't have, you know, the Ingve left hand, but just putting a few notes together and making them sing is so important to me. And I feel like it's so often overlooked. Um, people would rather just everything just be perfect. You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. feel isn't always perfect. There's semitones. There's again, like I said, even on drums, there's push and pull that are involved with feel. You could pull back, which might not look good on a grid, but if it helps you push forward with a flam to end a phrase, it helps you push forward with your, the way you slam and dig into the kick with your leg. It just adds impact to everything. And as long as everyone's on the same page with that and the band is unified within that feel, it, it, 
presents itself as something different. It's not just cool. It's on the grid, the end, you know what I mean? And that, that's something that I I like to get really involved in and more, not to put my stamp on things, but more so to just show that to younger bands. Like, Hey, this is something you could do. I know we're all told like, it has to be perfect. This has to be on the click. This has to be pitch perfect, whatever. If the feel is right, then it's good. Like Mm -hmm. that's all that matters. How does it make you feel? Does it give you chills when you hear this part? Um, like 808s don't give me chills, like an 808 before like a breakdown or something like that doesn't, you know, or, or yeah. a reverse symbol doesn't give me chills. What gives me chills is that little, the, the way the hand slides up the fretboard and you hear that little squeak before a certain chord. That's what gets me the way a singer breathes before they say a certain word or the way they exhale after saying a line. Like that's what gets me. That's For the sure. stuff that I think, but it's more subconscious because it's, to us, we're conditioned to consider those things in the background or as engineers, we're conditioned to delete all that stuff because mm-hmm. it's just noise, you know? Yeah, of course. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's it's that's that is the feel that is the emotion. It's like, you know, hearing a singer who's exhausted, like breathing heavily in between lines, like that's part of the emotion. That's part of the intensity of what they're doing. So to just delete it all kind of you're stripping it of like that rawness um and it's interesting too because i I know a couple other guys that have like perfect pitch and that they're very particular about like with guitar tuning and stuff like that they'll they'll literally tune every single note and like Mm -hmm. you know like record chord by chord as opposed to like a whole performance because like they're just so picky about the the pitch Mm -hmm. and you know I, i i understand that from a technical perfection standpoint but i often feel that like you lose that feel and it just it starts to feel robotic when you do that because you're you know you're taking someone out of their natural way of playing an instrument and just doing it a certain way for the recording and you know like i guess there's pros and cons to both but i i kind of side with you where it's like the feel is often the thing that moves people and the, exactly. the technical perfection doesn't really matter as much and you know it all it's a lot of it has to do with taste and i'm i'm really big on everything is within a context and you know it could even be age groups you know if you're someone my age you're in your mid to late 30s and you came up on like 90s alternative rock so much of that was feel and that's what my ears are conditioned to to knowing and i do get a lot of younger bands that are conditioned to something completely different so I really like finding a middle ground in all of it. And I will say as for the, like everything being perfectly in tune, I'm, I'm very much like that with guitar leads because it's a m- melodic element singers. Mm-hmm. Like I want them in tune unless it's, if it's like a loose double and it's going to be a little off and that's the character if it's indie rock, whatever the character is of it being a little loose or if their voice just shines with that subtle, that whether it's a little flat or a little sharp, if that's where their voice shines and the feel is right. Cool. But mm-hmm. again, the context matters. If a if a band is coming to me in a genre where I know that the average listener within that genre is expecting things to be at a certain level, then I'm going to keep that in the back of my head. I'm not going to change my workflow or especially the way I mix to cater that. I'm not, you know, if if some sort of, if I don't get a lot of them, but say I, I record like a pop punk band or something like that, and they come to me and I know already know like, okay, the expectations within the genre are for it to be on a grid are for them there to be these huge ambient drum samples and for vocals to be pitch perfect. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But if I could introduce certain elements within the guitar leads where it's like, "Eh, let's try some effect, you know, rather than that octave, 
you know, that, that little octave lead that you're going to do. Let's try to do some single note thing with some cool effect that you never hear in the genre. Let's throw it through the space echo. Let's kick a phaser on midway through the solo just to throw people off. Like, let's just do something a little different because mm-hmm. there's, there's so many bands just within these genres. And it's like anything you could do to stand out is so crucial. And I, I get, you know, leaning into your influences, but I feel like that's where a producer could be really helpful for certain bands, just bringing that other perspective and taking what they're doing and being like, hey, let's, let's put a little twist on this. I just had a band here for a few weeks that – um, awesome band from up north that uh, we're doing kind of like you know the modern revivalist of like the shoegaze thing yep. that's been really big the last few years and in my own mind I hear a lot of it I'm like cool this is just the next phase of pop punk because it's just slowed down <laughs> there's reverb and to me what a lot of it is missing is the feel in the vocals same way that when everyone was talking about there's a big grunge revival all these bands are coming back reviving the early 90s I was like, well, the flannel's back, the power chords are back, but the odd time signatures aren't there and the riffs aren't there. And by all means, no one's coming out sounding like Lane Staley anymore. Like there's no Chris Cornell's. It's so, you know, we're, we're just bringing along a lot of talk, talk, what I call talk singing, where you're just doing a linear melody in your talking voice. And yeah. man, if you can get that vocal to be exciting, add some grit to it, add some feel like. I would if I have two weeks with a band, I would rather get all the basics tracked in the first two days live as a band, get them feeling really good and spend 12 days with a singer just developing the feel of his vocal or Mm -hmm. her vocal. Um, Same thing with the guitar leads. If we have time left for leads, it's not going to be like, "Uh, I guess this will sound good here. It's like, no, dude, we're we're going deep right now. We're going to pull out every pedal in the studio. I want you to switch. I I have guitarists switch guitars all the time. I have so many guitars here. and that's a big thing that even if they don't sound that different, they're all different. But even if they don't sound all different, they might be inspiring it in a different way. If totally. this neck is a little thicker for you, it might make you play lower on the fretboard. If this neck's a little thinner, you might feel comfortable hitting the higher frets. You know what I mean? So um, I'm really big on ah, something about this feels wrong. Cool. Grab this guitar instead. Yeah. And just trying those different things. And yeah, I like I said about that band that I had in here, they were doing something that's getting really cool in a modern sense. And it's a genre that I'm a fan of. I love the old shoegaze stuff. I love the early nineties stuff and the space rock stuff. And that's something I feel hasn't really been incorporated to the modern, the modern like rejuvenation of the genre. So it was really cool to bring that perspective of as a music fan into it. Like, this is what I wish I heard those bands doing. I wish they had, these spacey effects in it. I wish the vocals had a bit more character to it. So let's really focus on that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something I get really excited about when I'm working with young bands. And again, uh-huh. you could trace it all back to feel it's a different feeling and it gets them excited. It gets them hyped when they're in the studio to just have someone be like, Hey, I actually am a huge fan of what you're doing. And I feel like this could benefit the process. And yeah, they trust you. Yeah. As a music, as a songwriter, cause I, you know, I, I, I sang for a band and toured for 10 years with with my former band. I wrote songs solely for the purpose of having them out there in the world so I could listen to them, which is kind of a weird approach that you don't hear all the time. (laughs) But I just wrote the songs that didn't exist yet because I wanted to hear them. I'm like, man, it would be cool if there was something in this style. Let me write it so it exists. For sure. And I want to do that with bands. I want them to have music that they're stoked on, that they want to show all their friends, and that they think is genuinely contributing to that, that pot of music that's going out right now yeah for sure i love that i I think you brought up a really cool point about you know people's expectations of what a genre should sound like and how to 
make your production stand out from that. And and I, you know, I think it's true. It's like you know, if people are used to hearing, you know, you said pop punk. Like if people are used to hearing pop punk with gridded drums and all that kind of stuff, yeah, you have to be mindful of that, and you have to still somewhat stay within that con, con, conform or whatever, right? Um, but um, but at the same time, too, you can. There are some liberties you can take to make something sound different. And when those liberties exist, and or when when you can find those opportunities, you know, you should take advantage of them. And, and exactly, I think it does make things stand out. And and going back to like what we were talking about earlier with like the the feel and stuff like that, like if something is horribly off time, then it's not going to feel right to begin with. You know, <laughs> or exactly. if something is horribly out of pitch, then it's not going to feel good to begin with. So it's not like it's not like it's going to be so obvious that, you know, this is like a stretch, you know, it's, it's going to no. still sound normal and natural. It's when I say those things and about it being like, not when I say it's not perfect, it's, those are semitones to me. And to some yeah. people, they might just sound like the exact same thing, yeah. but <laughs> to me, they're, they're subtleties that add up, whether you realize it or not, those subtleties really add up and they could create something beautiful. And I mean, what's the first thing anyone notices when they listen to music, they listen to the vocal, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the more feel that you add to the vocal, everything underneath it could be on the grid, everything underneath it could be pitch perfect and multi-tracked and, mm-hmm. you know, overdubbed a million times, each note punched in every drum could be replaced, whatever. But if the, the leads and those melodic elements that are sitting in the center of a mix have feel to them, it's going to present itself different. There's no way to avoid that. It's going to sound different from the rest. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And uh, yeah, I mean, you can just have fun with your effects and all that stuff to just, you know, find inspiring moments in the studio. When I was doing my research on you, I, I came across your Instagram and there was there was one post that you had or a picture that I think it's even on your website too. Um, you had a sticker on your console that says distort everything, gently compress everything. And uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, cur- I'm curious to know, is, is that a motto that you live by? Um. That's a tough one. You know, that that came from Scott Evans, amazing producer uh, of the band Kowloon Walled City. He makes those stickers. I don't know if the gently compress everything. I feel like I could have swore that I'm the one that told him to do those. Maybe I didn't. Um, (laughs) They're just, you know, those are so polar. They're polar extremities. Gently compress everything, distort everything. I'm more than anything. I am huge on committing to sounds. Um, you're never going to hear me say, yeah, but in the mix we could add this or, but in the mix, I might do this with it. You're always going to see me commit to it and whether it might be extreme and it might involve, I'm, you know, I'm always compressing vocals to a certain extent going in all through hardware. And as far as distortion, I'm not afraid to crush stuff on the way in. I EQ on the way in, Mm -hmm. um, and I'm completely comfortable doing so. I, I understand the argument for leaving yourself a blank palette to work with later on, but I, I would like to think that when I have a conversation with a band, um, I really like to get the point across that I work completely off of instinct. If my gut says it's the right thing to do and it's then I'm going to fight for that decision. If my gut says that that's not working, then I'm going to move on to something else. And because of that, I tend to work really fast. I, I don't really slave over parts or tones for hours and hours and hours trying to find something. It's just whatever my gut says is right. And if my gut says this isn't the kind of guitar part that we need to throw through the orange until the 412 and mic it up with these three mics and these EQs. If my gut says plug it straight into the preamp and overload the preamp and capture it like that, then that's what I'm going to fight to do. Cause I'm going to think that it's going to add a different character to it. And whereas a band might be nervous cause they're like, but what if that's not right? Can we get a safety just in case? 
my, you know, it's the same way <laughs> if a band's doing a live take and they'll be like, that one was okay. Can we do another, but save that one? I'll say, yeah, sure. And I'll, I'll delete it without even telling them. And I don't care. <laughs> that might scare the hell out of some people. But as soon as I hear the eh reaction, but, but save it anyway, it's, it's gone. Yeah. If you're already you implying like that you didn't like it or it wasn't perfect. Dude, then, yeah. yeah. I need you to be excited about your takes. The end. Like, let's just get one more for safekeeping. Why? Just let's just get a good one, period. And I don't care if that means we're comping a vocal or I love to get full takes out of singers. Um, I love to get full live takes out of bands all out on the floor playing live together with the amps in the room. And I love using that for records. I'm, you know, if there's bleed, who cares? You're a rock band. Like, this is how it works. It's going to sound sick. And it's not like I'm going to solo the overheads and you're going to hear a roaring guitar. You might hear a little busy high end off of something, but um, yeah, that's just, it's just what makes me excited totally. to work in the studio and just trusting my, trusting my instincts and, and talking to bands and having those conversations where in advance. So they know that once they're here, I want them to trust their instincts as well. And they're going to have a great time doing that. Cause we're just going to be throwing ideas off of each other rather than, Oh, we've, we haven't been able to figure out the bridge for this part for the last six months. We were hoping you could help us with it. They play it for me. And it's like, cool. I think that bridge maybe isn't really a thing. So let's ditch it. Just go back to the chorus. And that's, you know, that might be an idea that comes to the room within 30 seconds that they've been slaving over for six months. Mm -hmm. And because it just feels right from a first listen. So I I think bands and producers, we all should just trust our instincts a bit more and not be afraid to commit to things, commit to sounds. And if it's all, you know, a big thing is like, can we get a DI of it too with guitarists these days? It's like, well, we'll run through that, but can we get a DI just in case? And it's like, I guess, but let's just get it sounding cool and then capture it. You yeah. know what I mean? And, <laughs> um, you know, I have this, this huge summing mixer in here that I love to use and I freak some people out drummers out before, because sometimes I'll commit kick in, kick out snare top, snare bottom to their own tracks. So it just goes in as one track while they're recording, which means I'm not auto aligning it after I'm not doing anything individual to it. I'm just mm-hmm. shaping one sound on the way in. Because if I know I'm mixing it, it's like, well, this is going to happen anyway. Let's just get it good from the get-go. As the low end I want, high end I want, the snap I want, it's there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and it's it's like you already have the vision of what the song's supposed to sound like. So why not just get it right from the beginning? Instead of like presenting yourself with a gazillion plugins in posts and trying to figure out which one should I use? Like you're, you already have that instinct. You already know what you like. And people, I think, are hiring you as a producer that they they – are familiar with their with your work they like the sounds of your projects so let's just let them lean into that you know like i think that's exactly i, I think commitment is a great thing to do and yeah I, I agree with you about like you know live off the floor stuff if a band's just kind of feeling meh about their performance well then just do it right you know let's get a good one you know so yeah, yeah. play together like for so long because i had a small studio my old spot it was just like all right everyone uh guitar player in the control room let's plug in a scratch drummer will be in the other room and that process was just, you know, this is how records are made. And once I I moved my studio out here and I had this, the floor space to have a full band set up, just seeing that the polar opposite reaction of musicians hearing their amps live, seeing the, again, that the push pull I talk about, mm-hmm. the feel, um, a drummer might anchor his right arm to what he's watching the right hand of a guitarist play. A bass player might anchor their picking structure to how a kick drum is being hit. And that's stuff you don't get if you're playing one at a time. So I love getting live basics. Um, and sometimes you don't even keep any of it. You just keep the drums and then you, you layer on top of it. And 
And that's okay too, but it, it just makes for something different and it feels more organic. And, and again, when you're committing to all those sounds on the way in, when it comes to mix, you throw up your faders and you're like, cool, what do I have to do? Let's automate this, <laughs> automate that, clean up this, clean up this transition, maybe comp the bridge from this take to this take. But you're not sitting there problem solving because a lot of mixers, or, you know, if you're mixing your own stuff, when you ask like, all right, what do you do? What's your first step of a mix? It's like, well, you know, I start to find problem areas and it's like, why are there problem areas to begin with? Like you were there when it was being tracked. There shouldn't be any problem areas. If you were in the room, you know, if, if there's a problem area there, it's because you let something slide and you let that exist. You know what I mean? And again, sometimes that happens when you have to deal with editing performances. I, I understand that that's human. But tonally, it shouldn't be like, oh, well, it's time to fix that snare sound. Well, why wasn't it awesome to begin with? Or time to fix that guitar sound. Well, why wasn't it awesome to begin? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, if you have a hand, you know, that's if you're mixing something that you recorded. That's We don't always have that luxury if someone sends us tracks. But if someone sends us tracks, I think we all have our workflows where it's like, all right, these should all hit these levels. Let's pass it through my setup and make it work. In that case, you know, you kind of you play the role of a problem solver. And sometimes what I like to call a turd polisher, um, when you're getting a lot of home recorded stuff, sometimes you're just, well, they expect me to make this competitive. Let's deal with this. You know, these four mics on a drum kit for this kind of record. But it's all part of the game and it's fun. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I totally agree with you. It's like, you know, why? Why make yourself work harder in the mixing stage? You know, it's it's like. You're being lazy in the recording stage to make way more work for you in the mixing stage, you know, versus do it the opposite and be proactive and get the right sounds at the beginning. And then your mixing stage becomes so much easier and you can be a little lazier there. Well, not you're not even being lazy. It's just like there's nothing to do. So you don't have to work as hard, right? Exactly. And that's more time that you could spend experimenting with the the greatness that's already there. If, mm-hmm. if I get a mix up in like three hours and I'm happy with the balance and everything's good. And I feel like I still have some more time or like, eh, I finished this a little fast. Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to start passing stems from that mix through my summing mixer, just to add a little more grit, a little more saturation of these stems, or I'm going to be like, ah, this part's cool. And in this mix, I automated it into this delay let's reamp it through the space echo and just do it physically. And that way I'm not dealing with, you know, ones and zeros. I'm physically turning some knobs on, on tape and it's going to be different every time I do it. And it's just going to make for a more human, a more human element to the recording overall, even though the band's not here, this is just something I'm doing in the mix. And that's stuff I love to do. I, I don't shy away from like, I'll add a synth part. I'll add a guitar part. I'll add a piano part, whatever. If I feel like the mix needs it, I'll send it to the band. If they don't like it, cool, it's gone. Yep. But if they do like it, awesome. Here's just one extra set of hands on this recording, and it's just going to add to that wall of sound. For sure. I think the reason why a lot of people don't commit is because they have this lack of confidence in what they're doing. And so it's typically like, you know, they're they're afraid in the moment while they got a band in front of them to, like, mess around and potentially get the wrong kind of sound or whatever. So they're like, let's just play it safe, get the band out of here, and then, like, I'll spend a gazillion hours in the mix to try to make it perfect then, right? And it's like when people aren't there totally. to, to, to witness it, right? I think that's one of the biggest reasons why people do it. But you have to also just trust your gut at some point and just kind of have this clear vision for for what the final product should be. So get those sounds right at the source. Um, I'm curious to know, like, you know, when it comes, when it came to you getting to a level where you did have that confidence, like, were you always that way? Or did you, like, work yourself up to that point of confidence where you were feeling, you know, comfortable. 
I think I've always been that way for better, for worse. I think that it, it does take some experience to actually make that workflow, uh, usable <laughs> you know what i mean because <laughs> you could commit to some really horrible stuff early on and um it's all trial and error you know what i mean if you commit to something bad on the way in then what do you do you learn how to problem solve it when you're in the mix so it's win-win you know what i mean even yeah. though you, you might have committed to a bad sound well now i'm going to learn how to deal with oh man who recorded the snare drum oh crap i did i'm the one that boosted <laughs> you know 15 db at at 8k on the way in of a piccolo snare well, now I'm going to deal with it in the mix and learn how to problem solve that. So either way, I come out of it with a positive. And as long as the band's happy, they didn't know I had to slave over that in the mix. It's my own fault. But uh, <laughs> you do that enough times, then you just build the confidence to get it on the way in. And of course, like, you know, do a test recording. when a band. If you do have a band set up live in the room, get your sounds, record them for a couple minutes, and then have everyone come in and hear what you're committing to. Listen to it while you're all fresh at the start of that session. Are you happy with your kick sound, your snare sound? And if they say anything like, yeah, but can we add more reverb like in the mix? No, let's just add another <laughs> pair of room mics instead. Or like their guitar sound. Yeah, but maybe in the mix, can you add a little more distortion? No, let's just add, you know, let's change your, your, the gain on the way in. Maybe try a different pedal. Um, to the point where everyone's excited about those sounds. So that way, when you get to the mix, they're not sitting there being like, why is this like this? They were there. So everyone's accountable. I'm accountable for the sounds. And so is the band. Cause even though I'm saying these are things that my, my gut reactions are, are involved with the band is fully involved as well. Of I'm not going to make these decisions without them knowing clearly, you know what I mean? I'm not going to, I'm not going to go out there and tune a drum kit and then tell the drummer, here's what you're getting. I'm going to say, are you cool with that? How do you feel about that? Is the snare kind of fat? Is it too loose for you? The kick, is there too much rebound? What can we change? For the guitarist, like, is there too much gain? Is there not enough gain? What are you used to? Let's find let's find a middle ground, but that doesn't necessarily reflect what you've always done because let's try something new. It's an album. You're going to live with this on, who knows, what, an 18-month album cycle, depending on what kind of band it is. Yeah. Let's make it something fun. Let's make it something exciting. And obviously you came here for a reason. A lot of bands come here to my new studio because they want to utilize this drum room. So why wouldn't you want to hear it? You know of what course. I mean? If you, if you want to utilize this drum room, but you want like the hyper sampled production, then it's kind of like, it's kind of a waste to record in that room. I get the ambience and being able to see you know, the view from here is insane, but Let's capture the sound of this room. I mean, same thing with vocals. I, rather than use a plug-in reverb, I would much rather reamp vocals in that room or throw a room mic up with, when a singer is going and, and use that as the ambience. There, mm -hmm. I have enough space to do it, so why not utilize that? And Bands could do that even in small rooms. You know what I mean? Throw a mic. If you have an extra channel, throw a small mic in the corner. See what you get. I used to do that all the time with a cheap like $30 ribbon mic. I would just throw it in a drawer in the corner of the room. And sometimes it would become my main drum sound because it had so much character to it. And then it's like, how'd you get that big drum sound? Well, well, I had a, some piece of crap mic in a trash can <laughs> 10 feet from the drum kit and it happened to sound rad. I didn't yeah. need the close mics after that. Um, that that's very cool. I see, love that. These are all, these are all, they're happy accidents. And, and sometimes they can make for the most important thing, in my opinion, on a record, which is the character of the record. Yeah, I, I love that. I think, you know, that kind of, um, you know, that kind of experimentation is is a big part of what ultimately makes a record sound the way it does. You know, it like I, I some of my favorite sounds have been from throwing mics in the weirdest places. 
And, mm-hmm. you know, capturing that natural sound of a room or, you know, having something that's like super distorted, you know, kind of some weird mic that's super distorted or whatever going through some effect. Like often that's that's the stuff that really gives the record's character. And and it's often kind of a cool thing for the band to experience as well. Right. Be like, oh, this is what you're doing. Like they they it, they have fun with it as well. <laughs> Dude, give give a singer a handheld mic and just see how their eyes light up when they do a performance. Because, yeah. I mean, I have, you know, I have some killer vocal microphones here and I'll build the booth out in the big room and you know I'll do the whole thing so they feel like they're in that they have that million dollar studio experience but sometimes if the genre calls for it it's like cool here's a vintage 630 EV635 omni mic here's an SM58 here's a 57 um and they're they're always scared like so should I be careful with how I hold it nope you're holding it like <laughs> you're at a show just yeah. just do it just do the thing I would, I mean, look at Rage Against the Machine. That first record was recorded on like an SM58 handheld. You know what I mean? Most of Nine Inch Nails, the downward spiral was recorded while he was crouching underneath the console with an SM58. Like so much of this stuff was done even without headphones with just speakers blurring at them. You just flip it out of phase and get rid of the bleed after. And I I don't see why that's, that kind of went out of style for some reason or in what I would like to think, like more aggressive productions, you would think people get more experimental. But I, I see more safety nets than anything in, in those genres. And I would like to see a return to that because it makes it makes musicians excited. I love that. I don't have a window between my control room and live room because the way that they're staggered within the building. Um, and I love that. I love that no one could go out there and see what the singer's doing. I love that I can't see the drummer's posture, you know, because it forces me to just use my ears to, to dictate, you know, problem solving if there needs to be, uh, you know, a, a solution to an issue that I'm hearing and it's not just using your eyes and, you know, yeah. if it's a vocal, oh, maybe you're a little close. Maybe they're right up on the vocal. But unless I hear that coming out of the speakers, then I'm not going to make them change their flow. It's true. And, that's, yeah. you know, are they cupping the mic? Cool. Maybe they are. If I don't hear it, then it's not a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's brilliant. I love that. Yeah, because so many people would just be like watching every move that the musicians make and, you know, hyper analyzing everything and just, you know, hit here versus there, you know, that kind of thing. Totally. So that changes that changes people's comfort level as well. Big time. I'll do it. I'll do it with guitarists. You know, I'll have guitarists in the room with me sometimes, bass players, most of the time, actually, just because, again, that's when the tuning thing really comes into play. And if I hear tuning issues, it's much harder for me to walk the 30 feet over to the live room and be like, oh, that's what you're doing. I'd rather just look next to me and be like, okay, you're bending this string. Let's play it this way instead. Or if the whole riff is going to live on that section of the fretboard, let's tune that string down to compensate for for how your hands are naturally pulling it. Because I'm not going to, no one's going to reteach you how to play guitar in the eight hours that you're here today. You know what I mean? So (laughs) let's come up with the workaround so we can get this tracked so we could, you know, cut some takes. Yeah, Yeah, totally. Yeah, and whatever sounds good is is what you do. That's it. You know, whatever sounds good is good. That's, yeah, exactly. That's it. I remember like very early on, um, one of one of my mentors. He was he was a bit of a stickler for like watching people and getting like you know positioning things in a certain way so that they'd hit hit plays like he, with drums. He'd be like, watch the drummer and like see where they hit the drums and like you know if they're hitting off to the side, move the snare so that like they're hitting in the center and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And like. Yeah, I get the theory. I, I get the concept of that. But then, like, I listened to a drummer like Chad Sexton of 311. I don't know if you're familiar with him. But, but like, mm-hmm. he's got this, like, iconic snare sound. And, like, part of the reason why his sound is that way is because he always hits the side of the drum. Like, he's not hitting in the center. And that's part of the sound of it, right? And so it's mm-hmm. like, I, I like what you're talking about where it's just like, who gives a shit what they're doing? If it sounds good, it is good. And, you know, like, only if something's bothering you do you then go correct and and 
Exactly. You know, you, you have to tread carefully when you do that too, because you don't want to mess up someone's way of playing. You know, whatever makes them feel natural, right? Totally. And a, a, something I see often with a lot of younger producers is, you know, we learn the 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 correct way, so so to say, the the, the correct way to do things. And you're just trying to correct things when you're on a time crunch and all you're doing is taking a musician out of their game. So it's really important, in my opinion, to come up with these workarounds. If it's tuning, um, sometimes singers, especially if you're dealing with like aggressive singers, I've worked with a lot of aggressive singers that will come to me when they do their first melodic type project because they're comfortable with how I'm going to coach them on their vocal. And sometimes if you tell them like, hey, you're a little flat here, they're going to be like, cool, what the hell does that mean? Yeah. It means I'm low, so I need to be higher. And, you know, you need to be able to pick up on that and be like, okay, they don't understand the terminology of this because they haven't been doing that for 20 years. They've been screaming for 20 years. So do this. When you sing that note, there's little workarounds. If if they're consistently flat, you talk to them, hey, when you end that note, do it with a bit of a smile. Because when the sides of your mouth come out, come up, the pitch is going to come up a little too. That's a little workaround. Uh, you're saying your E's a little this way. Say them a bit more like eh. Your A's are sounding a bit like A's. Let's make them a bit more A's. And learning the effects that those subtle inflections have on a vocal performance, for example, this applies to every instrument, but on a vocal, you're going to notice these workarounds that get you from point A to point B that much faster. And the vocalist is going to take that with them because it's simple. They're not going to go home saying like, oh, I guess I'm consistently like a third flat or I'm consistently about 10 cents sharp (laughs) whenever I hit this. They're going to be like, okay. Remember to kind of have a smirk when I sing this note because I always hit it flat. Remember to to exhale on this word and cut this word short so I could get that breath in time to finish this long line. And just, you know, they're hacks, they're cheat codes for, for musicians. And sometimes that's all you can do when you're on a time crunch. And, you know, if I love working with bands in a pre-production sense. I love going to rehearsals. I love listening to rehearsal tapes and trying to problem solve that stuff before they get here. But sometimes you don't even realize what they are until they're under that that microscope of a microphone. And when it's there, it's really important to have that instinct reaction to, cool, this is how we're going to fix it now, and we're going to commit it that way. Yeah. I don't think even most musicians notice what they're doing when they're in a rehearsal setting because it's just like mm. everything's so cranked that they can't hear what they're doing. They're not they're exactly. not like they're not aware of themselves. It's only when they really listen back that they're like, oh, yeah, now I hear what's going on. Like, I got to change this for that or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, even in a pre-production standpoint, like I always think it's really important for people to get like a demo at the end of the night of like, you know, this is this is kind of what it sounds like. And then people can reflect back and be like, oh, yeah, I see why this works. and That doesn't work. That kind of thing. Right. Whenever I'm going into a record with a band, like a full length or something that's a bit lengthier, I have them come up about six weeks in advance and I have everything mic'd up in the live room and I just have them play the record start to finish. It'll take about an hour. I'll record it all live. It'll everything will be clear. And then they leave with that recording. And the reason that is, is because there's such a huge difference between practicing in your 10 by 8 practice space than practicing in a large room with airspace because you start to realize why you wrote certain parts to be a certain way. Sometimes you might kick on a certain effect or chug or have the the drummer switches to a crash because he can't hear themselves in that smaller room. That's the only reason they're making these decisions that might be detrimental to the song itself. So having them play in this big room, a lot of musicians notice they're playing different. So when they can, I even tell bands before you come to record, if we're going to do live takes, rent a large practice space, go to rehearsal studio, rent the showcase room. That's whatever, 75 bucks an hour for three or four hours and run through your set like there, identify any problems or things that are revealing themselves to you in a space with a larger airspace and take that back to the small practice space, take it into account. Cause there's a huge difference between the types of parts you play in a small room versus a big room. 
and you know no one's playing on a stage that's like you know eight, eight by four to you know in a venue that holds 12 people i mean i guess all of us that came up in a hardcore punk scene have. But <laughs> yeah, i guess some people have done that <laughs> yeah exactly um I, I definitely played some of those but i think that learning how your music translates to a more open space, which is more reflective of how a venue, a traditional venue would work or even a backyard is important. And Mm -hmm. it should dictate some of the decisions that you make um, rather than just judging it onto whatever the small space practice space that your band could afford at the time, which I also get that that plays a huge factor in it, but just keep that in the back of your head, you know, when, when you're writing your songs and are you doing this because it's better for the song or are you doing this to hear yourself above the noise of the small room you're in? Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Yeah, I think it's so important. Like, I always tell bands, too, like, if they're, like, a heavy band, I'll be like, just play the song acoustically, you know, just to even hear, like, what both guitar players are doing. Sometimes, like, when when everything, when all the distortion's off and everything, and you actually hear the strumming patterns, like, you realize, oh, wait a minute, this person's pushing this note. I'm not doing that. Like, you know, you gotta catch all these little details that sometimes you wouldn't if everything's just cranked to 11, you know? Those details all add up, and sometimes they could add up to what we in a mix would call mud, Mm-hmm. Or what we'd call like a cloudy, you know, oh, the low mids are kind of cloudy. Cool. It's because this guitar player is stru- doing all downstrokes and the one on the right side is doing up and down or down, down, up. And the bass player is God knows where. And that equals what we would call mud in a mix. And yeah. we try to solve it with a bunch of EQ. But it's like, dude, let's commit it the right way. Let's make sure everyone's on the same page with their strumming. Um, and that's, you know, we talk about buildup of frequencies when you get to a mix. And uh, you know, frequencies don't just build up on their own. They don't build up just because your amp is EQ'd a certain way. They build up because of the parts you're playing, uh, the rain, where you are on the fretboard. That's what causes those buildups. So again, like we fix it on the way in, then it doesn't become a problem in the end. Yeah, I love that you brought that up because so many people will reach out to me like getting, you know, for for advice with their mixes and there's that mud there and they're like, yeah, I've tried EQing this and that. And it's like, well, your problem isn't EQ. You could EQ like like crazy and you're going to end up ruining your mix because everything's going to sound thin or boomy or whatever. But often it's just like focus on getting the tighter performance. You know, either you either you focus on getting a tighter performance or you focus on super editing everything and making it sound super tight. And all of a sudden your mix now has, has room to breathe because there's space between notes and, you know, you're not trying to fix problems or, or, you know, battling, trying to fit reverb in a space in a mix where there's no room for that reverb, you know, like, exactly. So one, one last thing I wanted to ask you before we, we end, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your drum sounds. Cause to me, one of the things I really like about your records is the sound of your drums. Um, I think you have a really, you do a really great job of getting records that have this like really cool dry sounding drum kit. Like, you know, the drum, the drums will typically sound dry, but at the same time, there's like a roominess to them that I think adds a lot of character. And often it sounds like it's like kind of like a short, slappy room tone that you like to use. Um, and so I'm curious to know a little bit more about your process for recording drums and, you know, what that looks like. Do you, do you generally prefer to have dry sounding drums or like, do you care? Is it more dependent on the drummer? What's that process look like? It really depends on the the music itself. And I'm definitely not afraid to switch from song to song. It could be on the same record and I'll have a drummer play in the big room. I'll have them play in the dead room and I'll, I'll switch snares a lot from song to song. I'll switch snares mid song. I'll switch snares for the choruses. I'll switch a ride symbol for a chorus. You know what I mean? It's just whatever works for that part. But in terms of like the sounds themselves, like it's as raw and just, I have such a light touch when it comes to drum sounds, to be honest, just because I've, I've been lucky enough to have this killer room at my new spot where it's just, you know, 18 foot ceilings 
And it's the floor plan of this place is all open. So even upstairs where the bedrooms are, because it is, it's like a residence as well. Um, but where the bedrooms are, there's no outer wall. So it's almost like the whole upper floor of the house is like a loft. So I have oh, wow. mics up there. Um, there's just so much airspace going around for drums. So I'll put, you know, these big gobos on the side of the drum kit. I'll get a lot of the direct drum sounds. I'm, it's 99% of the time I'm not using any reverbs at all on drums. And it's just a blend of the room sounds. I'll have one stereo room mic in front of the kit. I might have some far room mics. I might have a mic in the shower in the downstairs bathroom, which is all tiled that'll pepper in there. Um, but that's it. I mean, I'm not even, I don't really mess around with any parallel compression. There's just, you know, a bus, like an SSL bus compressor on it. And I kind of mix top down in that way. Mm -hmm. All the EQ is on the way in. There might be a, a hair on a channel strip in the mix, but it's just having such a light touch. And that comes from years of just overcooking things and thinking like, all right, so as soon as I have this track, like you're supposed to put, okay, you need to put this kind of compressor on the kick, this kind of compressor on the snare, this and this and this and this. And, and, you know, sometimes that does, it, it does hold, have its place when you're dealing with problem solving in terms of a drummer's performance. If they're inconsistent, then yeah, maybe you might have to even throw a clipper on the snare drum, which I've done just to, to hold it in place. And you know, not being afraid to do those things. Um, I'm not scared of bleed. I use condensers on my toms just because I'd rather get that full range, that high fidelity out of the drum itself rather than have to deal with, you know, like a 421 and the, the sound you get out of that. I'd rather just get, you know, the full range coming out of it. And if there is bleed, it's coming out of a condenser mic, which cymbals sound beautiful in condenser mic. So <laughs> it, that splash isn't going to be harsh. It's not going to have these peaks to it. Um, that's a big part of the drum sound here, I'd like to say. But most of all, I just want to capture the sound of a particular drummer on a drum kit in this room. That's that's everything to me. This this room is so awesome for drums. And I like to think that's why a lot of bands come here. So it's just getting the sound of it and just putting that stamp on the recording. You, you came here for this room. Let's make sure you could hear this room. And if it is something dry, which I all... I love like dead drum sounds. Yeah. I have this whole like 500 square foot adjacent space to the control room that I've just put treatment all over. There's a million rugs in here and I'll build a little room within a room and have them do the drums in there. It's a lower ceiling. And sometimes it sounds rad to just have that explosive quality of, you know, verses are in the dead room, choruses are in the big room. And all you have to do is go down the hallway, jump on <laughs> it. Headphones are set up in both spaces and let's just do it. I love having two drum kits completely set up and ready to go. Um, I love having drums, several snare drums tuned before a session so we could just switch on the fly. And I, I like to say that's the biggest part about the drum sound here. I hate having to lean on like drum samples for anything. Um, it's just, it's never been part of the workflow that I'm excited about. Even from when I started, I found myself being forced to learn how to implement that. Um, you know, if you wanted to stay relevant in the competitive age of these slamming records, you just have to use how to, you have to learn how to incorporate samples into your workflow. So Knowing how to do it is important, but also I feel like a lot of that has to do with people having the small rooms and having this space mm -hmm. here, which I always, this space is completely open to freelance engineers as well. So I tell my friends, like, you, you want to come cut drums here? Like, do it. Throw, throw the room mics here. You're going to have a good time and then just build off of that sound. And yeah. I've been getting more and more people doing that just to, I used to, you know, used to think that was all smoke and mirrors when you're young and you're searching online, like how to get a great rock drum sound. And they would, you know, the old heads on gear space, Oh, it's a great drummer on a great drum and a great room. And you're like, all right, cool. I got a, you know, <laughs> a piece of crap 
drum kit in a piece of crap room with a mediocre drummer. Tell me how to make this sound huge. Like you're not giving me the answer I want. (laughs) But the room thing I think has the biggest impact because you could put a drummer that doesn't hit consistently in that huge room and it makes no difference to the mics that are 20 feet away. It's just picking up impact. It doesn't matter if they were an inch off from the rim shot. It doesn't matter if they caught it at a weird angle. They're just getting the the air moving in, in that space and capturing that has been so cool here. And I've really been leaning on that since I moved here and been doing, doing records here. I really want, it's not like I want that to be my sound. It's just like, that's what I've always wanted. I just finally have a space where I could do that and a space where other producers could come and do that on their productions as well. And I love to keep the space affordable to, to other bands and other producers because of that. I, I, man, more than anything, I just want really cool music coming out of this space. I don't care if I pressed a single button or turned a single knob on the recording. If people did a record at, at the, my studio, the Pale Moon Ranch, then I'm super excited about it. I'm pumped on it because I know those sounds directly correlate to all the hard work I put into like securing this spot and to making it comfortable for musicians and making it a creative space that's you know within reach. It's not mm-hmm. like those destination studios we see on the Instagram Explorer page that were like, maybe one day I could afford to go to Iceland and do <laughs> drums there. Or, you know what I mean? It's This is within reach for a new young band trying to do a demo or a platinum producer who just wants to cut drums in a cool room with vibe. Yeah, and it's a, it's a beautiful space, man. Like anyone listening to this podcast, like go check out the website because yeah, it's it's definitely one of like the the coolest views I've seen in the studio. So that it's awesome, man. <laughs> it scares people too because you see all those windows. I mean, it's just a room. It's four hundred and eighty square feet of windows alone in that front room. But the the shape of this house just let, even the control room. It's like it's all sloped ceiling, no parallel walls. One wall is stone, one is drywall. It's all different. So you're not dealing with any weird buildups, reflections. Even in the the big room where I cut drums, there's zero slap off those off that glass because the room is shaped like like an octagon. Um, so you don't have to deal with any of that. It all you have to deal with is like a view from almost five thousand feet in the San Gabriel Mountains above LA with a full view of the Mojave Desert, and it's awesome. It's an, you know you'll be recording in there and you'll see bobcats and coyotes hanging out in the front yard. You'll see jackrabbits, bluebirds. <laughs> I mean, how often do you get to see that in, in your recording setting? And it, and it adds to the experience. And I think a lot of times we grew up always wanting the destination experience of being able to lock ourselves in the studio for two months and make those masterpiece records that we grew up on. And that's not always within reach. And sometimes when you do go to like a, a commercial studio, it feels like you're just clocking in and out every day. And that's a feeling I got really tired of at my old space is cool, we're finally in the groove of making this record. All right, time to clock out, walk outside. All right, here's the real world. Here's traffic for an hour. And sometimes that'll pull you out of the experience. So having a space here where I have lodging for seven people and you know these beautiful views. And at the end of the day, we're only 60 miles away from downtown LA. They could drive over the mountain within an hour and a half and get everything they need. They could drive down the hill to the closest small town and get everything they need there but you still have the experience of a destination recording that's within your budget. And it's, it's going to be something you always remember. Cause this place is really special. I, I'm still, I still can't get over it. I can't believe I <laughs> somehow ended up here and the imposter syndrome creeps up on me often where I'm like, I don't deserve this. This space should be to, you know, belong to someone else. But that's why I feel like being observant, being of service to a community of music in general is my is that's my contribution to all of it and like i said whether i'm working on it or i'm just opening up my space to other people i feel like i'm playing a role in all of that and it's really cool so that's 
you know, I love getting other engineers, other producers out here to make something special. That's awesome, man. I love it. All right. One last question. At the end of the day for you, what ultimately makes a great mix? What ultimately makes a great mix for me is when I'm not focused on the mix at all, when I'm listening to it, when you're just hearing the song. I mean, when individual elements are pulling you in, it, it to me, that's distracting. And especially if it's if you're just listening to music as a fan of music, as an engineer, sometimes you're listening to it and all you can do is zone in on the weird kick drum. All you can do is zone in on the weird bass sound, the weird guitar sound, whatever. But sometimes you put on a record and the only thing it does to you is give you the chills. And that's, to me, that's a great mix because the engineer did everything they can to put their work out of the way, let their room, that their work sit in the background so you could just focus on the song. And that harkens back to what I said about how I like to track drums, how I like to track bands, as natural as possible, doing stuff on the way in. Because the less processing you're doing in the mix, that all can just end up being a distraction to other people. When, you know, sometimes when bands want me to automate the the classic, and this part, can we have it like pan from left to right? And I'm like, yeah, but it's going to be weird. I understand that that sounds super cool in theory, but to me, it's distracting. Like there's, to me, music is so cinematic and you know, the classic like blooper reel, the, the blooper reel of a movie or a TV show where the, the boom mic makes its way into the shot or yeah. someone stares straight at the camera. That happens to me in music a lot. There's a lot of times where I'm listening to music and there's that moment where the boom mic falls into the scene and it pulls me out of the experience because there was something weird and glaring that got left in there or just, just something that didn't sit right. And when that is out of the picture, it just it feels cinematic to me. And that's the experience I want. And there's there's so many records that all those Smashing Pumpkins records do that for me. A big one that does it for me is the Sunny Day Real Estate record, how it feels to be something on. I could put on that record and I'm transported to another planet on headphones, on studio monitors in my car. I'm, you know, of, of course there are killer tones on there, but everything just sits where it needs to sit. Um, you know, the Nine Inch Nails records that I love, the Silver Chair records that I love, all these cool '90s albums have that quality to me. And unfortunately, when I listen to a lot of certain types of modern productions, the only thing my ear could zoom in on is, oh, that sounds like the same snare hit every time, or you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I recognize that, or yeah, cool, that's kick, that's kick ten. Or, you know what I mean? Like, oh, I know that plug-in on this amp sim or, you know what I of mean? Course, and that, yeah. the average music listener isn't going to find that stuff. But I'm speaking purely on behalf of myself as a, someone. I can't live without music. Music's on 24-7. I fall asleep with music on. I wake up to music on. I drink my morning coffee with music on. Everything I do is surrounded by music because I can't imagine life in silence. It's just not something I'm capable of doing. So with that, I need to have, I, I can't be overstimulated by sounds and particular moves in a mix and particular, you know, those, those things yeah. that I'm talking about. And the more you, you get those things right from the get go, the more they just sit more organically in the mix. And to me, that's what makes a great mix. Love that, man. Dude, this has been awesome. I, I've really enjoyed just like chatting with you and learning more about your process and your philosophies on all this stuff. And, and uh, yeah, I, I think it kind of makes sense. Like you, you've created a space where people can just, be in the moment and perform naturally, enjoy the space and be as creative as possible in a creative environment. So um, it makes sense that you've like, you know, with that being your general philosophy, like and wanting that having a studio space like you have is is, is impressive and is makes sense to have that. Um, so, dude, this has been great. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. If you want to learn more about you, follow you online or maybe even work with you, what's the best way for them to do that? 
Yeah, the the studio website is thepalemoonranch.com. On Instagram, it's at thepalemoonranch. My personal is at uh, the letters LX Estrada on Instagram. Um, you know, if you like a beautiful scenery of a studio and pictures of a really cute calico cat, then you're going to like the stuff I post. That's pretty much all I do. My life revolves around the studio and my cat. So that's and vegan food. That's all you can get. I'm not a cat guy, but your cat is super cute, man. <laughs> She's the best. She was, she was born. You know, I found her at four days old on the streets. When I first moved out here, a bird dropped her out of the sky. Literally a bird was flying overhead and dropped her in a parking lot and brought her home. And she was bottle fed by the bands I was recording. And all she knows is living in a recording studio. And she's the greatest studio cat ever. She's just, <laughs> she's part of the process. She's part of these records. She's made it to a few records. Bands will have her meow. We'll, we'll sample it. We'll pitch it, whatever. <laughs> and it's just, man, it's so cool to have such a chill little creature around and what could be such a stressful environment sometimes, you know, totally. making a record. So I love it. I welcome it. And, you know, to, to anybody listening and to you, you're ever out here and you ever just want to come see the studio and meet the cat, by all means, drop love me to. a line. And I love having visitors up here. And so does she. I'd love to, man, for sure. <laughs> right on, man. Well, dude, thank you again. I appreciate it. So that was my interview with Alex Estrada, and that was great. I really enjoyed learning more about his process and learning more about his studio. His studio is a beautiful space, so definitely check out the website. It's it's like a dream-looking studio that most of us would just like drool all over, right? But um, anyway, it's a really amazing space, and I love that he was talking about building an environment that is creative and inspiring. And I also enjoyed that he got into the topic of committing to sounds on the way in because when you're working in such a cool space like the one he is in you know it would kind of be a shame to have to sample over everything and completely you know create all these different sounds and posts right when you're in a great studio you want to capture that sound and use it not just cover it up with a whole bunch of samples so i love that he talked about committing to things on the way in and i also really appreciated that he talked about the idea of getting super tight performances right at the beginning and making sure that everyone is really locked in with each other and how often the muddiness that we perceive to be mud in our mixes it's nothing to do with frequencies in fact most of the time it has to do with timing so whether you're getting the right performances right from the start, which you should always do, or you're tightening it up even further with some extra editing, you know, going that extra mile and taking those steps can really create a lot of clarity in your mix without needing any extra processing, right? So I think that is a big lesson for a lot of people to learn because I can tell you with a lot of my coaching students, that is one of the biggest problems I see is that often their mixing problems aren't actually mixing problems. It has to do with more tracking or more editing issues. So getting things right at the source and making sure that things sound tight from there is going to make your mixing process significantly easier. So I love that he talked about that because I think it's a really important lesson that a lot of people need to hear. So I hope that you enjoyed that episode. I hope that you found it very informative and helpful. And if you're the type of person who is thinking to yourself, well, I don't quite feel confident enough in my recording process, or I don't know what to do in the editing process to get my track sounding tight so that there's less to do in that mixing stage. Well, if you're that kind of person and you're looking for one-on-one help, then I would absolutely love to help you. Inside of my coaching program, Amplitude, I work one-on-one with you and give you all the tools you need to know exactly how to get the best sounds at the source, how to edit properly, how to get your mixes sounding great. And throughout that entire process, I'm there to hold your hand. And I'm here for one-on-one support and feedback so that you can bounce your tracks off of me. You can bounce your questions off of me so you're never feeling stuck. So if you're interested in learning more about this and getting one-on-one help, 
make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com forward slash Amplitude. And from there, you can request a demo of the Amplitude program. I'd love to hop on a call with you to show you around and see how I can help you out. And if it seems like it'd be a great fit, then I'd love to work with you inside of this program. So once again, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com forward slash Amplitude. And that's where you can find all the details. So with that said, we've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around. And I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. Talk soon. Later. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.